Hey, welcome back. I mean, I guess to me, you've been here. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for tuning into today's podcast. We have a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the guy we killed in Baghdad. You know, that's just Donald Trump going crazy. Epstein's suicide note. Star Wars review. Uh, the review of the movie 1917. Surprisingly, I'm a Seahawks fan as well as we find out in this episode. Steve Dace will talk about politics and what's really happening on the ground in Iowa. And a tribute to Don Imus. All on today's podcast. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck program. Going to war. It's World War Three. Maybe, maybe not. Let's uh, let's let's not count our chickens before they hatch here. Um, let's talk a little bit here. I'm going to next hour really get into who is this guy that we killed? Why did we kill him? Wh- what do we know about him? Uh, was this just something that you know Donald Trump did, just half cocked, or? Perhaps is this something that was coming for a long time, and yet no one seemed to understand the signs that Donald Trump was showing starting, oh, I don't know, maybe last spring. I'll give you that coming up in an hour. But let me just say this. World War III, I don't think so, unless uh, Iran really goes to town and i think the only place that they would really go to town uh and let everybody know it is israel they might let missiles fly to israel and destroy tel aviv that's what they're they're talking about now if they do that they are betting that that will awaken the arab world and the arab world would unite in a caliphate behind them that is a possibility wash the world in blood However, I don't think that they would take on America knowingly. So in other words, them sending a missile, you know, from a ship off the, off our coast or whatever, uh, or, you know, blowing up the presidential motorcade or, you know, they're threatening the White House. I just don't see them doing that directly as a state because we would wipe them off the face of the earth within an hour. They kill our president and Americans, no matter, no matter what Hollywood is saying today. Who was it that joked, uh, we'll, give it, we'll do it for half price? It was George Lopez that they said, what was it, $80 million yeah. bounty on Donald Trump's head? Correct. Yeah. And, uh, and um, he came out and said, oh, we'd do it for half that. Really? Would we, George? One thing that does bring Americans together is when you kill our president. Now, um, I don't think that they would do that. However, I do think that they would possibly go after an embassy. That's what they were doing, led by this guy. Um, that's what they were doing in, um, in Baghdad, trying to take our embassy. We have a history with Iran taking our embassies. This is the guy, as you will find out next hour, there's a good possibility this is the guy that actually orchestrated Benghazi. So he took over our consulate. Now he's trying to take over our, our embassy. No, you can't do that. Um, 
So what's the retaliation and what's the solution? Retaliation, we have to wait to see, but it ties into what I'll tell you next hour. Um, uh, World War Three. If it's just us and Iran, we win. And it's not going to be World War Three. If they really believe that they are put in the position now where the caliphate can happen, it would be World War Three. We'll give you more in it in just a little while. But there's no draft coming. This this it's amazing how the press works. First that Donald Trump is half cocked. No, I I can go back to your own reporting and find out all I need to know about how long this has been coming. Um, but the press is yeah, now trying to scare people into there's a draft coming. No one in the Pentagon wants a draft. No one. No military branch wants a draft. The only way that there would be a draft is if the Democrats insisted on one. Because every conservative and every single person in the Pentagon does not want a draft. Because you don't want somebody watching your back that doesn't give a flying crap and doesn't want to be there. You only want the people there who are prepared to fight. And Democrats propose a draft all the time. All the time. I mean, it used to be every single year. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they would propose a draft every single year because... You know, their little philosophy that, you know, not enough white people, I think, are in the on the front lines. <laughs> they seem to turn everything into race. But that is a, something that the Democrats have been talking about for a very long time. It's not it's not realistic. I mean, we're not even at war right? This, this is with Iran right now. I mean, we are in a proxy way. And yes, we did have a very high profile incident. However, that incident was covered under our, our, our efforts in Iraq. Mm-hmm. He was in Iraq. Uh, he was, yes, he was a high-level official he, who was organizing attacks against our troops in the country where we have an authorized mil- military yeah, action. And he's he's also not uh, he's not responsive to the people. He's not he does not fall under the elected government. That's the thing that you have to understand. There is an elected government of of Iran, and then above that there is the Supreme Council. And the Supreme Council doesn't answer to the elected officials. In fact, they're the ones orchestrating what all of the officials are doing and who can run and who could be a legitimate candidate. So the people have very little say. But this guy in particular, he only answers to the Supreme Council, which is all of the crazy mullahs. He doesn't answer, doesn't have to talk to, doesn't have to report to, doesn't have anything to do with the elected government. So what you're talking about is a guy who is rogue, who's listening to religious zealots, and he's going around the world setting up ways to kill people and to kill Americans, to kill anybody that stands in the way of the Iranian idea of a new caliphate. I love, I love how they keep bringing in the, look, we've had intelligence failures before. And, uh, you know, who knows what this is. This, they're saying there was an imminent attack. And, and there's been these, you know, remember the Iraq war? Uh, you went into that and you had nothing. And it's like, well, I guess theoretically this is possible. But let's investigate this for a second. He's admitted a bunch of this stuff. He keeps going on television and saying he's killing Americans. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, unless he's lying, 
Now, you could definitely argue there's a lack of intelligence in admitting these things on television. That's a lack of intelligence, but that's the only one I think we're or dealing with. Or the lack of intelligence in the reporters themselves. <laughs> yeah. You know? it's not, They're not even trying, right? No. I mean, you just look for things to to target the Trump administration here. This there, There's nobody who's uh, arguing that has any credibility that this guy... Uh, was not guilty and and was uh, one of the most dangerous people in the world. You can argue lots of things around the process around it. Like, whoa, did did he call Nancy Pelosi in advance? Well, there, I'm sure that would have worked out well. We would have found this guy. He was he would have been in Acapulco before mm-hmm. before the the missiles started from mm-hmm. coming. So I, I don't I don't you can't do that with this administration. They will leak against him on anything, and that he has to be. You have to be uh, guarding that side of it if you're Donald this Trump is what this happens point. when you can't work together on anything when there is nothing sacred and it's all about destroying a president when it's all about destroying a president that's what you get the president can't trust you can't t- talk to you can't bring you in for advice and counsel just has to do it without you because he knows that anything he says in private will immediately be leaked if They either disagree with it or think that they can get a political leg up. That's what happens. This is not good. And Trump has to follow the law whether he thinks people are leaking against him anyway. But what he doesn't have to do is follow every little traditional disclosure that friends used to give each other back in the day where they would go out and have drinks uh, at the fancy steakhouse after work. He doesn't have to give them that. And that is the only thing they seem to be complaining about. Okay. This all relies on trust. And who do you trust? Well, 60 Minutes is now throwing... uh, I I, I don't... I I mean, they were very careful last night to say, well, we don't have all of the facts. Well, if, if you weren't comfortable with what you were doing, you shouldn't do it. Um, But I think they were comfortable in reporting last night... It doesn't look like Jeffrey Epstein was all that sad. Doesn't look like at least. Oh, you didn't read his note. His note was devastating. Really? Oh my gosh! I think they this guy that. was on the the note. The note won me over. Definite suicide. Really? I mean, the things he was going through. Mm-hmm. I, I I almost feel that we shouldn't tell the audience because it may make them so sad that they all hang themselves. Well. I'm going to risk that. Oh. And we'll go over what happened on 60 Minutes last night. Oh, and Ricky Gervais, oh, he remains good. my hero. The best of the Glenn Beck program. Hey, it's Glenn, and you're listening to the Glenn Beck program. If you like what you're hearing on this show, make sure you check out Pat Gray Unleashed. It's available wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right, so let's uh, let's go through what happened last night on uh, 60 Minutes with uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, it's interesting because really this story was out there for such a long time. Conservatives complained about it for years and years and years that Jeffrey Epstein was, you know, the normal target was Bill Clinton that he was hanging out with. And nobody in the media cared about this story. Nope. Eventually, we got to a point in which the guy who gave the sweetheart deal to Epstein was in the Trump administration. And at that point, thousands of reporters 
swamped to the scene Mm -hmm. uh, to figure out exactly what happened. And some of the reporting, honestly, has been really, really good. I mean, the the Miami Herald probably at the top of that list, but there's been some excellent reporting on this. And now, you know, it does seem like the journalists have crossed the line as, you know, now they care. I'm not sure it was all of the journalists. I think some of the journalists did care. I think it was all of their bosses either didn't care or were being told not to care we know this with the james o'keefe story uh where they were able to get the one reporter who you know was complaining about not being able to get the story out you know years ago yeah nbc we know that as well so the so 60 minutes runs a big thing on basically did jeffrey epstein kill himself and one of the guests they have on is a guy who was uh he was a uh, a a doctor who was paid by epstein's brother to figure out the truth so realize that there's a motivation here into telling you that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill right, but himself. But he is also a credible witness. But a credible done, guy. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. done many, many uh, of these. And oh. He's very credible. So, uh, Sarah, I think we have one clip from Mike here on, uh, on from Dr. Michael Bowden is his name. Um, he is, or Baden, I believe it is. Um, he was a, uh, this is the guy who was paid by the Epstein family to kind of figure out, look into what really happened here. Uh, let's listen. Do you think there was foul play here? The forensic evidence released so far, including autopsy, point much more to murder and strangulation than the suicide and suicidal hanging. I hesitate to make a final opinion until all the evidence is in. People will say, well, you're being paid by Mark Epstein, so of course you're going to say that something suspicious is going on. That's a reasonable thing for some people to think. But our job is to find what the truth is, just to find out whether it's a homicide or a suicide. Uh, we're uh, still haven't gotten all the information. And this is not a guy who had, hadn't dealt with situations like this. Mm-hmm. He had thousands of them. Mm-hmm. Here he is talking about how rare it is to see the types of fractures uh, from Jeffrey, Jeffrey Epstein. Listen. I have never seen three fractures like this in a suicidal hanging. Sometimes there's a fracture of the higher bone or a fracture of the thyroid cartilage. But not three. Very unusual to have two and not three. And going over over a thousand jail hangings, suicides in the New York City state prisons over the past 40, 50 years, no one had three fractures. <laughs> no, just no one, but just no one out of thousands out of 40 years. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, they and one of the other points he makes is there. They have now these pictures have come out. They're pretty graphic of, of Epstein. You, you can see close ups of his neck and a couple things. You see like a line of blood essentially on his neck. You do not see blood on the noose that was supposedly used, at least in the pictures. Uh, you do not see a point where when you have a, a typically a hanging you put the thing around your neck, it sort of slips a little bit, so you'd see almost markings of a slippage, which they did not see. Also, uh, they go into some uh, depth on um, the fractures, which just seem to be completely odd, and the fact that this the pictures are more consistent with a wire, essentially, a wire strangulation than a typical jailhouse hanging uh, of themselves. Um, however, the other evidence presented was pretty compelling as well. Um, and, you know, what do you want to do? You want to come up with a motivation for something like this if it's going to happen. And the motivation was clear in a suicide note. Oh, And the suicide it? note was incredibly okay. powerful. I mean, you'd kill yourself, too, in this sure, situation. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, he makes several points here. Number one, mm-hmm. uh, Epstein writes, kept me in a locked shower for an hour. 
So, I mean, look, you, you, you molest a few hundred teenagers. You're not going to be, I mean, I mean, 20 minutes in a shower, maybe. But an hour in a shower? Now, I know, freak, first of all, showers are awesome. And, and as my wife would tell you, I've taken too many one-hour showers. They're, they're just awesome. However, when you're locked in there against your will, for one full hour, that's 60 minutes, also the name of the show that mm-hmm, this happened on. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. That's number Coincidence. one. Coincidence. How about this? Uh, it looks like Noel, who may have been one of the guards, mm-hmm. sent in burnt food. Holy cow. Now, the shower, you didn't have me, but now but they're now, burning the food. Burnt food. I'm, I'm starting to get sad myself yeah. if I'm thinking this is happening to me. Right. Now you're really right. sad. Yeah. The next part. Giant bugs crawling on my hands. Now, I, I, I wouldn't. That sounds pretty bad. I don't know exactly what happens. My guess is he wakes up in the middle of the night. There's a cockroach on his hand. He's not used to this activity, uh, likely. Uh, he. I don't know a lot of people that are, that are. used well, to I, I, that activity. I, but... I did live in a couple of residences early in my life. Yeah, early in my life. It was, life. Not, it was yeah. not so great. Um, however, those three kind of build up. You know, the, the shower for an hour, the burnt food, the bugs on the hands, that's all really bad. But it builds really to the final conclusion, which is typically the thing you would write before you commit an actual suicide, which is no fun, exclamation point, exclamation point. Oh, two of them. Two. two exclamation points here. No fun. No fun. Now, of course, you go to prison for molesting a bunch of children. You assume it's going to be fun, but not here. No fun, zero fun, not even a little fun. He that's specifically the most ridiculous, says no fun. That's the most ridiculous suicide note I've ever heard. It doesn't see, I mean, it looks like a, a couple of things he wanted to bring up to his lawyer. It has nothing, it doesn't look like a suicide note at all. Like maybe he's whining to his lawyer for better treatment or whatever, but that's not a suicide note. Unbelievable. No fun. No fun. <laughs> and the, it almost points to the fact that it wasn't a suicide. Why are you complaining about your conditions if you're about to hang yourself? I, well, unless suspicious. these are the reasons. But those are not, not reasons. reasons. <laughs> no, not I mean, reasons. Maybe the giant bugs. I might kill myself, too, if I had giant bugs all over my hands. But, you know, no fun. It's not going to be fun, bud. This is the best of the Glenn Beck Program. Hey, it's Glenn, and if you like what you hear on the program, you should check out Pat Gray Unleashed. His podcast is available wherever you download your favorite podcast. Hi, it's Glenn. If you're a subscriber to the podcast, can you do us a favor and rate us on iTunes? If you're not a subscriber, become one today and listen on your own time. You can subscribe on iTunes. Thanks. We were just talking off the air about how uh, cars are not holding their value anymore because of all of the new technology that is out and uh you know you used to go in and at least i would you know you'd go in and you try to buy a new car but you'd buy the new car you'd buy a 2019 today because you'd get a big savings on it but people are not buying the 2019 because the 2020 has so much more technology on it and if you go back and you look at an uh, an older car it looks dated inside and so if you're somebody who trades cars in every four years, uh, you're going to start to get hurt um, because that car is a, it, it's almost making the idea of the fleet 
Now, this is according to one of the guys we talked to. He was the former chairman of the board of GM, I think. He said GM won't be making cars the way we think about cars today by 2030. He said there'll be fleets and most people won't own their cars. And that was such a hard thing for somebody of my age to think not owning a car. But the way cars are changing in technology, the the only car that's going to not look completely outdated or be completely outdated is Tesla because it will update its software all the time. And so when you want that new, you know, that new thing, you just update the car. Well, GM, all these other car companies are not doing that which makes the resale value of your car go dramatically down. This is the best of the Glenn Beck program. Like listening to this podcast? If you're not a subscriber, become one now on iTunes. And while you're there, do us a favor and rate the show. We go to uh, Kenneth Timmerman. He is um, he's the author of Dark Forces that came out a few years ago. Um, and he really knows about who this guy was that we we killed um, uh, last week in the airport of Baghdad. A lot of people are upset. I don't think you should be upset because I don't think the real Iranian people are all that upset either. Uh, they're probably cheering the death of this guy at least the people that want to be free. Uh, welcome to the program, Ken. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on, Glenn. You bet. Important topic. Okay. So tell me who this guy is before you get back to what you really discovered uh, in Libya. Tell us just generally who this guy is. Uh, well, he is, uh, as you mentioned, he's as bad as bin Laden. Uh, he is the chief terrorist of the Iranian regime. He runs a whole legion of overseas terror operators called the Quds Force. That means the Jerusalem Force. Uh, their goal is to spread uh, the Iranian ideology and the regime itself to, to foreign countries. So they're present in Lebanon. They're present in Syria. Uh, they're present in Yemen. They're present in Iraq, Afghanistan. They're the ones who command terror attacks. They're the ones who were going to blow up the Saudi ambassador in the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C., plant a bomb there because they didn't like the guy, take out perhaps 100 people having lunch in the downtown Washington, D.C. This was 2011. Uh, he blew up the Israeli embassies in, uh, in Buenos Aires, uh, killed uh, 86 Jews at a Jewish center there in 1994. That was also one of their operations. He is the worst of the worst. And in addition, he is the best that they've got. So we just took out somebody incredibly important for the regime. Okay. What people don't understand is that the regime, the elected regime, is all hand-selected by the real regime, the, the mullahs and the ayatollah that actually run everything. And this guy did not report to the elected officials. He reported right directly to the ayatollah. Correct. He was his right-hand man. And uh, you see again and again pictures of the two of them together. Uh, he was doing the bidding of the Supreme Leader. And I can tell you today, Glenn, that the Supreme Leader himself personally is shaking in his uh, plimsolls. Um, and why do you say that? Well, 
because he realizes that the U.S. no longer is going to be bound by the diplomatic constraints that have held us back in the past. Uh, there has been a, a kind of taboo, if you wish, on hitting people like Soleimani um, for many, many years. And this is from the State Department. It's from the Pentagon. I'll give you one example. Uh, in 2007, they, um, his people kidnapped five American soldiers in Iraq, in Karbala, and murdered them. Uh, and instead of striking back at Soleimani, we released some of his people that had been arrested in Iraq. Soleimani and the Quds Force were responsible for approximately 600 deaths of U.S. soldiers in Iraq with the specially formed, uh, explosively formed penetrators. These are, uh, uh, you know, warheads that are planted in IEDs along the road. Very, very deadly. I've written about this quite a bit. You can see that at KenTimmerman.com. And he, we did nothing. We did not retaliate against Soleimani. So now the Supreme Leader realizes the gloves are off. He could be next. And certainly, for sure, the man who replaces Soleimani, should he conduct similar operations against Americans, he is definitely going to be next. So it's almost as if history is repeating itself in in some ways. Um, under the Obama administration, uh, we had the Benghazi consulate attacked. And then when Iran tries to do it again with a, a new Reagan, if you will, somebody who thinks a little like Reagan, uh, we don't put up with it. We put up with it under uh, um, Barack Obama. And in fact, your reporting shows that that Soleimani was the architect of the Benghazi uh, nightmare. He was indeed. And uh, I know this uh, primarily from Iranian sources, but also from Americans who were who were uh, had access to some of the briefings before the 9-11 attacks and to a very key document, which is in my uh, one of my books on Benghazi called Deception. Uh, this is a defense intelligence agency after action report uh, delivered to then director Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn, remember, who was uh, mm -hmm. then the, became the national security advisor to President Trump and was going to clean house in the intelligence agencies and, and of the deep state. Well, Flynn asked the entire defense intelligence community what happened in Benghazi on September 11th, 2012. And I specifically want you to tell me what we knew about the Quds Force involvement. That means Soleimani and the Al Qaeda involvement. The report that came back, which I've published, you can see it at uh, KenTimmerman.com or in my book, Deceptions. That report came back six pages. The first three pages were on the Quds Force involvement. Everything that we knew about them, everything that we knew about Qasem Soleimani in the Benghazi attacks blanked out. Three pages of it. And then the last three pages were about al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda affiliates. And there you see a sentence here, a sentence there. But we knew a lot. The U.S. intelligence community knew a lot. And I've written about that in my books on Benghazi. All right. Um, let's go to the, um, the, the embassy in Baghdad. He was the driving force behind that attack? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think we know pretty clearly by now from what Secretary of State Pompeo has said and the president, the U.S. intelligence community knew it. They knew that Soleimani was behind uh, that. Uh, you know, they were they were attempting, Glenn, to repeat what happened in Benghazi. Correct. And they thought that they could uh, storm the embassy and that we would just cave and nobody would come. There'd be no reinforcements. No one would come to the rescue. Well, what a difference a president makes. 
This president immediately sent 100 Marines from Kuwait. They secured the embassy and the attackers dispersed, uh, as opposed to what happened in Benghazi. What do you say about the, uh, I'm just quoting a, a headline here, millions of angry mourners from all walks of life participate in separal, separate funeral ceremonies held in the southwestern city, blah, 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 of the, uh, of the martyr Soleimani. Uh, well, I don't see them joining the ranks of martyrdom with him. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> we, we've always known the regime is capable of mustering a crowd. Uh, in many cases, they pay people to come. They, they let them get off work. They oblige government employees to attend these mass rallies to chant death with America. And many times when the, when the cameras pan out or you get somebody from a uh, pro-freedom movement taking a, a, a YouTube video and they post it, you see that uh, it, it, when you, the camera pans out, there's nobody in the square. There's a, there's a tight crowd around the speaker up front, and then there's nobody in the rest of the square. Uh, these are rent mobs uh, The people of Iran who are sick and tired of these tyrants who've been governing them for 40 years, an era of 40 years of darkness in Iran, the people of Iran are celebrating. And I know this. I've seen it all over um, uh, social media. They're very active in social media when the regime does not block the Internet. They've been celebrating the demise of Qasem Soleimani and can't and can't wait until the rest of the tyrants go with him. Um, people are trying to make Donald Trump look like this was just something that, you know, he's doing because he wanted people not to pay attention to uh, the uh, impeachment which is what a lot of conservatives said about the bombing of the aspirin factory during the, uh, the Monica Lewinsky thing when uh, uh, Bill Clinton was going after Osama bin Laden, who Americans didn't know at the time. Um, but this, uh, you know, I was reading this and it, it talked about how we have we've always been following him. But the White House told the Pentagon, I want to know where this guy is 24 seven at all times. Back in May, it was also back in May that um, we we put uh, the Quds Force on and the IR. What is it? The IRG, uh, CIRGC, uh, put them on uh, the terror watch list for the first time, which he is, you know, a controlling member of. Obviously, Um, there was a defection of a very high uh, ranking intelligence officer who it seems to be like the, the uh, a uh, uh, a walking knock list in a way, and he defected in April and brought all kinds of classified documents with him. Is there any connection between his defection and this killing, and the well, the upping of everything in May right after his defection? Very good point that you raise, Glenn, and I really haven't heard anybody else connect those dots. Extremely important. You talk about this defector. He was the head of the intelligence unit of the Islamic Republic uh, Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, and he did come out uh, and, you know, clearly you say a walking knock list. He knew everything that the IRGC and that the Quds Force were doing. Did he give the United States the ability to track Soleimani in real time? I don't know. Uh, I don't don't know about, I'm not asking about that. I'm asking, did he bring information, do you believe, that um, proved or opened uh, the eyes of the administration or the Pentagon and was enough evidence to know this guy 
we have to watch because he's all over the world and we may have to take him out. I, I think what happened is that he essentially made it so crystal clear that Soleimani was never going to put down the gloves. He was never going to stop killing our people and that we had to take action. I think that really, I, I think you're right. I think that tipped the balance. And that, by the way, is when you hear Mike Pompeo, he was interviewed right shortly after that defector came out. And he said, yes, we put uh, Qasem Soleimani uh, back, on, back on the terror list. He was taken Correct. off. He personally was taken off by Barack Obama uh, at the moment of the Iran deal. So Pompeo said we put him back on the terror list. And some TV interviewer said, well, does that mean that we're going to do the same thing to him that we did to Osama bin Laden? And Pompeo just gives him that icy stare and says he's a terrorist. All right. So let me ask you a final question. Where does this go? Is is Iran and the mullahs and the Ayatollah, are they enough of Twelvers that they believe that they're going to wash the world in blood and this is a good thing for them to retaliate? Or are they in butt uh, saving mode and may strike, but they're not going to really they're not going to have their fingerprints really well known on anything? Glenn, let me tell you, I've thought about that an awful lot. And uh, there's something to be said on both sides. But here's where I come down on this. Look at Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran. He died at the age of 88, comfortably in his bed of old age. The leaders of this regime, they can be Twelvers and they can try to send the masses out to martyrdom, but they themselves are going to save their rear ends. They've got airplanes waiting to take them out of the country should the regime start to fall. Uh, I think they're going to save themselves, and I think the the person and the people who have replaced Qasem Soleimani are not going to take dramatic action against the United States because they know they're next. And is is this something that uh, we play out? We would be well advised to play out by playing this almost like the collapse of the Soviet Union, tighten sanctions, help the people on the streets, uh, and uh, make sure everybody knows how evil this regime really is. But we don't have to lob any bullets or any men over there. Absolutely not. But And you're right. This is like the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, we can sit back, enjoy it, but help the people of Iran. I think what we ought to be doing, uh, and apparently we now have the capability of doing this, is make sure whenever the regime shuts off the Internet that we turn it back on so the people of Iran can communicate to the rest of the world Mm. uh, so the regime cannot kill in darkness. Mm. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Kenneth Timmerman, he is the author of many books, one of them, Dark Forces. Uh, You can find him at uh, kentimmerman.com. You're listening to the best of the Glenn Beck Program. You know, I have absolutely no interest in uh, the foreign press, Golden Globes. What? Yeah, I have no interest in How will in you that. know what movies they mm, think you should see? I, I'm, I'm going to have to wing it on my own. Oh, my gosh. Um, however, Ricky Gervais is one of my favorites. I, uh, he is brilliant. So he good. is brave. His, 
His acting is good. His directing is great. His writing is great. And he's unafraid. We need more Ricky Gervaises. Listen to what he said in his opening monologue last night at the Golden Globes. <laughs> he he just oh. handed them their heads, which I love, which I love. You know who he is? He's the new Don Imus. That's what Don Imus used to do. Mm. And I'm going to share a story about Don Imus at the end of the program today. But that's how, you know... People are like, well, Don Imus, he was a racist. Why would you say those things? Because th- why Why is Ricky saying these things? Why is he saying them? He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. And you know what? Some of them are, as he said, just jokes. They are yeah, just sure. jokes. But other, others, uh, you know, need to be said. Need to be said to these highfalutin, pompous a-holes. And there's a level of celebrity that he has uh, that is he can get away with it, at least for a while. I mean, I think Louis C.K. also had that same level. And he was saying things that were really uncomfortable. And I remember at times thinking, like, I can't believe they allow him to keep saying these things. They allow him. That's that's so un-American. Right. Well, I know. Totally, right? Yeah. Um, however, of course, now we see that that was not. Um, eventually, he did, did go away uh, after all of that. And I don't know if the same thing will happen. They're, I mean, they're already looking for his old tweets for Ricky Gervais now. They're already publishing articles in left-wing publications about how you should look back at the things he said. They're very offensive. Here's your guide. Ricky Gervais is a, he's a hero. I just no, love the guy. Just love him. He's willing to say whatever's on his mind. Glenn Beck. The best of the Glenn Beck program. All right, Steve Dace from Iowa and from the Steve Dace uh, program, which can be heard on uh, this network every day right after uh, my show on the Blaze Radio Network and TV Network. Steve, welcome. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. I'm just patiently waiting for those articles of impeachment to be filed. How are you? (laughs) Oh, just uh, it's electric, isn't it? I mean, it's just electric. (laughs) They've it's almost like they've forgotten about them. You know, the Democrats are now just on right on to something else. Oh, my gosh, Iran. That's why he should be out of here. Indeed, 2018 ended with Trump's a Nazi, so give him all your guns. And 2019 ended with Trump is an existential clear and present danger to our democracy. So let's sit on these articles of impeachment for three damn weeks. Makes this is perfect crazy. Sense. <laughs> just crazy. Um, OK, Steve, let's talk about Iowa and what's happening with the Democratic Party. I want to play a clip from joe biden and listen to this he sounds like my grandpa did right before he passed away where he's not really fully engaged here listen to this iran announced today that it's accelerating this nuclear program guess who loses with that america and its allies there was an airtight agreement we had with inspectors on the ground the most intrusive inspection and all of human history not hyperbole we knew exactly we were in every single facility the international atomic energy agency and they were not they're not good guys but they were not moving is it just me or does he sound a a little uh, 
uh, unexcited, uh, unexcited. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I thought Robert Stack's voiced character in Beavis and Butthead to America actually did the most intrusive inspections in human history. But that <laughs> aside, um, I, I, you know, what you're pointing out, Glenn, is what I have been saying on, on my show for the last couple of months. And, and I'm not trying to be hot takey. So I, I got that hot take out of the way. And I want to I be really serious. This, this, he sounds like the average guy who's 80 years old. He and does. lived a long life and had done a lot in his life and, and, and been in a lot in, in a lot of high-stress situations. Yes. I, I don't think he can do the job, and I think that if, if he were leading a, a rival investment group to take over a Fortune 500 publicly traded company and you were in the other investment group, I think you could at least get a hearing in front of a judge about his competency level of whether he's legally competent I or agree. not. I agree. And I think that's and I think that's why he has not taken off in this race. And if you live here in Iowa, you see two Joe Bidens. Um, You see the one in the ads. He's running a great ad right now. Again, looking at it from a Democratic mindset, he's running a great ad right now. And he sounds presidential about how terrible Trump is. And if I only listened to that ad and I was a rural Iowan who remembered him for with Barack Obama for eight years, that's the guy I would vote for. But if I went out there on the campaign trail and actually saw him without the makeup and without the script and just interacted with him retail style, I would walk away shaking my head thinking, I, I don't know that this guy can be president. And I think that's why, you know, when he first burst onto the scene last March, he had, you know, poll numbers on a national level into the 40s. We've never seen anything like this, really, maybe since Fred Thompson was your flavor of the month 10 years ago. And then the more and more voters in Iowa and New Hampshire have gotten a chance to look at him. You've seen his numbers on the state level have flatlined compared to just the national name ID contest. And it's because when you look at him up close, you just don't think he's up to the job. But he but he still is number one. He still is. Is he going to take Iowa, do you think? I don't I don't believe he'll win Iowa. And I think, you know, national polling in prime in, in these primaries is irrelevant. And here's why. It doesn't matter what anybody in New York's opinion or California or Montana yes. uh, or New Mexico's opinion is. They're not voting right now. And, mm-hmm. and by the time the process gets to them, a lot of these candidates are going to be gone and a lot of candidates are gone already. So, so it really only matters right now what Iowa, New Hampshire and then Nevada and South Carolina. think. All right. So what is happening in Iowa? What's happening in Iowa is, you know, Democrats have lanes just like Republicans do with evangelicals and libertarians and the Bush wing. Well, there's wings in the Democratic and, or, you know, Ted Cruz used to call them lanes. There's there's lanes in the Democratic Party as well. And the problem they're having is no one is able to break out of their native lane to consolidate support. And so what we have now is you have Pete Buttigieg. He is the candidate of the uh, white suburbanites who desperately want a virtue signal to the leftists to hate them. Who, who you know drive a Subaru, live in a cul-de-sac with a coexist bumper sticker, and they love Pete Buttigieg because they're anxious to show you they're not a homophobe. They've not looked at his. They've not looked at his qualifications. That's his only qualification to them. And then you have the the college campus feminist hard left crowd loves Elizabeth Warren. And then you have you know your old school democratic you know traditional labor socially moderate uh, by today's standards anyway Democratic Party. That likes Joe Biden. And these and you've got these candidates now and Bernie Sanders is in there. He's got his own base, you know, that he's sort of the Ron Paul of the Democratic Party. He has his own insurgency base and he's eating into some of Elizabeth Warren's a little bit as well. But these four right now, it is very fluid. Um, impeachment has, has, has chloroformed the room. It's like if you open the door, you would realize it's a zero it's a zero oxygen 
room. I couldn't breathe in here. It, it, there's, it, it's made everything stale. So I would take all polling numbers and everything else, and I would not listen to any of that until about a week from now. I will tell you that, you know, the, the Bloomberg Register Iowa poll has been pretty good over the years. That's Ann Seltzer's group. I think she's actually with CNN now. They actually called me yesterday. So I'm worried about how tight their uh, turnout numbers are if they're calling me for a Democratic <laughs> poll. Okay, but I would I would wait and see what their numbers show. And then I would wait for this last debate before the caucuses. And if I could just throw in one more thing, too. This is this is I mean, February 3rd. We don't know what the weather is going to be like. So let's say there's a massive ice storm and rural Iowans can't get to their caucus site. But a bunch of campus feminists can just walk across the quad at Iowa, Iowa State, Grinnell, et cetera. That could make a huge difference where this is concerned. And then, Glenn, something your audience needs to know is the way that the Iowa caucuses are structured in the Democratic side is different than in the Republican side. You know, you're not going to get four, five, six candidates with 2% on the Democratic side. They're going to have a straw poll for relevancy right away. And they get in that room, you know, 10 years ago in the 08 caucuses when it was open on both ends. My caucus site, we shared a, a, a site with the Democrats in the, in, the, in the hall over us. We could not hear ourselves think it was like a labor rally. And so they get into that room and the emotion and the, and the ethos begins and the id starts to flow. And, and there's wide swings of opinions and college girls start bringing their, their moms and grandmas and say, don't you want to vote for Elizabeth Warren? Uh, I, I think, you know, that creates a very fluid environment. I do think we know who the top four are going to be. I think, though, knowing the order is tough. And keep in mind, not since 1988 was the last time there was a contested Democratic caucus that the winner of the Iowa caucuses did not win the, the nomination. So anyone who tells you Iowa doesn't matter just doesn't know history or they're just not telling you the truth. So what are the Iowans waiting for? What are they looking for uh, that would be game changing in the next couple of weeks? This is really all about there's one issue that is paramount. Who can defeat Donald Trump? The problem is, while that you would think and we've seen if you've seen this in the Republican Party in the past, well, we, anybody but Obama. But the problem is there's not an agreement on what that looks like. Does a technocrat who, who doesn't address divisive issues and gives you a reassuring persona like a Mitt Romney, does that beat Barack Obama? Does putting Mitt Romney or Barack Obama on a national stage to have a, a worldview clash like a Rick Santorum or a Newt Gingrich, does that do it? And so there's the same arguments happening in the Democratic side. I know it sounds nuts to us, but if you follow their media and their Twitter, they think the reason they're losing to him is they're not nasty enough and they don't lie as much. Um, and, and so there's that there's that debate that is and I know Stu follows that. So I'm sure he can verify that for me. Oh, it's so there's true. that whole debate. And then there's the debate of we need a mainstream American source. All right. And so, you know, there's that that's that's actually what Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg are both running for that. Pete Buttigieg never, ever mentions homosexuality in his ads here. Um, he doesn't come across as any kind of activist, no effeminacy or anything of that nature. He talks about being a soldier, a mayor of a small town in a red state. And so he is he is he is kind of uh, eaten into some of Joe Biden's support with that crowd as well. Do you think that there the, the couple of narratives that come out of this, at least in the political media, is one the caucus sort of situation you talked about earlier that's raucous and really, you know, has passionate supporters is a big indicator of potential upside for bernie sanders and that you get into mm -hmm. the room where it looks like warren's finishing third or fourth and those sanders people are going to bring the warren people over to sanders at the last minute and that you know with his fundraising numbers he's doing well in new hampshire there's a good poll for him today 
that, I mean, there is a path here for Bernie Sanders to be the nominee. Do you buy into that? I do. And I didn't a few months ago. His, it, it, I know it sounds uh, morbid, but we started off talking about Joe Biden's competency. So let's just go ahead and, you know, and, and round third while we're at it here. But his candidacy has taken off since his heart attack. He was dead in the water. He was polling single digits in Iowa, single digits nationally. He was behind Elizabeth Warren in New Hampshire. Um, his his heart attack has as has if you go back and look at where, where his metrics were pre that event to where they have been since, there's no question that that has been a galvanizing moment. Now, so you have to ask yourself, what the hell is wrong with people? I mean, yeah, a, I a, a heart attack in an old guy, hmm. Ronald Reagan, yeah. even. I mean, that is not uh, good news for somebody who's walking into a very high stress job. No, but I think it I think for his base, it sort of coalesced them that. Hey, we've got a window of opportunity to go full Soviet. We can't lose this. That was number one. And then, and, and then, and then number two is Elizabeth Warren made the mistake of being honest. Well, as honest as she was willing to be. You know, she was the clear front runner. She was getting challenged. Hey, show your work on your Medicare for All plan. And like the true Wellesley College for Women dean of faculty, she's always wanted to be. She thought, you bet, I'll put this all in a white paper and convince you that my one-size-fits-all plan that you hated about Obamacare, supersizing it, you'll like it even more. And, and even though it's what a lot of Democrats believe, it was a politically amateurish move. And I think it made a lot of people that thought, hey, maybe she could beat Trump think if she's going to fall for the banana in the tailpipe at the first if she's going to answer the first booty political booty call here, then she can't lie well enough to do this gig. She's just... <laughs> She's just too much of a true believer. And I think that has that crushed her numbers because she had really eaten into a lot of Sanders numbers. She was kind of his softer side of Sears. And when she showed that she could not match up uh, politically with with what they thought was going to be necessary to win, she's imploded. Bernie has risen. And then you've and now you've got Buttigieg and Biden fighting to be this more mainline candidate. You've got this Amy Klobuchar who uh, from Minnesota, it's a neighboring state. Who's not going to win here? But if you get into that room and Elizabeth Warren or Andor Bernie Sanders' support is eaten up by the other, she could maybe surprise and finish in the top three. She would only be taking votes away from Pete Buttigieg and Joe Biden. So that's why I think this thing is very, very fluid. And I would caution anybody to make any dramatic pronouncements here until we get another week. Okay, or two with that being said, dramatic pronouncements. I would like you to, <laughs> if it were held today, not not in a couple of weeks, but today. What would you say the landscape is? If it were held today, it's going to be 50 degrees in Iowa today, and it's beautiful weather. If it would be held today, we'd break a turnout record. That'd be the highest voted in Iowa caucuses of all time by either party. And then I think it would really just come down to when we get in the room, can Bernie Sanders and or Elizabeth Warren's supporters, you know, whether it's the Soviet id versus the feminist id, what wins out there? And that's, you know, that's that's a little bit like, you know, uh, me asking me to forecast an apocalyptic event. I hopefully don't want to be around here for. Mm. So I don't know the answer to that. But it would come down to if one of those two in the rooms across Iowa can can absorb the other support. If they can, one of those two would win. If not, then I think Pete Buttigieg would win. But I don't think it would be an impressive win for anybody right now. I think it's still very fluid. Mm. Steve, thank you so much. Uh, make sure you follow uh, Steve at Steve uh, Dace Show. You can uh, hear Steve Dace on this network, on the Blaze Radio and TV network. The Blaze Radio Network. 
on demand.